Welcome to Booked, where two guys finally interview this dude that we've been uh, hoping to interview for a long time. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. <laughs> um, I will tell you that we are doing this intro fairly calmly because I had, <laughs> we're doing it after the interview. Because um, I happened to be on the same call with Rob before the interview, and I, I think we were both a little um, a little nervous, even though we've done this for uh, for ten years now. <clears throat> there are still those people that uh, you know have been um, have been in your head for a long time. So um, I, it was very uh, very nice to 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 get to talk to Stephen. Um, we have a terrific interview lined up for you. I am going to give you um, the author bio. Stephen Hall's first novel, The Raw Shark Texts, won the Borders Original Voices Award, the Somerset Maugham Award, and was shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award. The book has been translated into 30 languages. His second novel, Maxwell's Demon, was published in the UK in February 2021. The book has been called a dazzlingly smart postmodern treat by The Observer and superb by The Telegraph. In 2013, Stephen was named as one of Granta Magazine's Best of Young British Novelists. Um, the book is available roughly now um, here in the United States. So if you're hearing this and it happens to drop a day before, go on, place your order. Amazon will put it in your box on release day. And if not, uh, this is definitely something you're going to want to read. So um, however you get your books, get this one. Uh, are we going to, here's the thing I'm asking, um, are we going to gush about how great the conversation was before or after the conversation? <laughs> Um, I think that um, we'll just let the interview speak for itself. Stephen, thanks so much for taking uh, some time to talk to us. I know that um, we explained just before the, the we started the interview in in earnest that we've been um, hoping to talk to you for a long time. So this is a big moment for us and really appreciate you taking the time. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm glad to be here at last. So listeners to uh, the podcast have heard us talk for probably about 40 minutes about Maxwell's Demon, um, but we'd like to give you a chance to kind of give that elevator pitch um, directly to the listeners. So if you would mind, tell us a little bit about Maxwell's Demon. Yeah, I, I will. The first thing to say is that um, elevator pitches are totally the bane of my life, my career, because I write these quite strange, unusual novels that don't quite sit anywhere and so i'll absolutely do my best for you but but bear in mind it will sound quite strange so maxwell's demon is a story about um a failed novelist and his very successful father and that kind of difficult relationship between you know parent and son that's that's kind of complicated by his father having taken on as an apprentice another very successful novelist uh, who is uh, the narrator's rival. And when the story starts, um, a couple of strange things happen to the narrator. The first is that he receives a phone call that seems to be from his father, even though his father's been dead for nearly seven years. And then he receives a message from this kind of estranged mentor, uh, prodigy of his father's, kind of suggesting that he's in trouble and sort of obliquely suggesting that the world is going to end unless Thomas helps him. And so that's sort of the jumping off point. And from there, it it tackles science, entropy, religion, reality, relationships, parents, children. And it's kind of a whodunit as well. So so kind of lots of things going on. Does that Does that sound vaguely like the book you guys read? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably a lot more succinctly stated than us um, talking about it in our review. Um, yeah, no, I think that does the trick. Uh, <laughs> awesome. 
<laughs> so uh, this question comes from uh, when I was looking around online and I saw some of the promotional stuff um, not on your Instagram, uh, like the Amazon page, I think, for Maxwell's Demon has the like all these images. And one of them says, we're sleepwalking into the apocalypse. So I guess my question to you is, are we sleepwalking into the apocalypse? Um, <laughs> I don't actually know. You know, I think there's, there's, there's kind of two levels to this answer. And the first level is that the book is a lot about some people who are quite crazy and quite obsessive. Although I did an interview where I pointed out that I wasn't the strange reclusive writer that appears in the book, uh, Andrew Black. <laughs> I was nothing like him. And then as the interview went on, I, I kept sort of mentioning things and having to admit, yeah, that is kind of a lot like him. So I'm more like him than I think, but I, I don't think the world is falling apart because of electronic texts and eBooks the way that Andrew does. That would just be crazy. But I do also <laughs> think, you know, what, as humans in the 21st century, what kind of constitutes the world and what constitutes reality? You know, and there's a phrase in the book about, um, is the world you live in made more of rocks and trees and stones or from letters and ideas and bank statements and emails? And it feels like the second part of that, that kind of constructed word-based idea reality does seem to be on slightly shaky ground over the last few years. Um, you know, ideas of, you know, these, these kind of stable things like scientific truth that we've always seemed to be able to lean upon seem to be under threat from various quarters. And, you know, um, we've all been locked in our houses for a year going quite strange, having quite strange ideas about what the world really is. So I think we're not sleepwalking into the apocalypse in the way Andrew Black believes, but I think we're living in a very strange time where I think lots of the things we sort of hold dear and have always kind of taken for granted are fraying around the edges in quite a scary way. So like an afternoon nap in the vicinity of an apocalypse. Um, <laughs> so it, it, that's, um, and I don't know how much you thought about what's going on in the present day or when that stuff was written, but the whole idea of like the pervasiveness of technology um, compromising the idea of like objective truth, I think mm -hmm. kind of rings with what's going on in the world right now. Um so that's that's kind of where my my head was when I asked that question. I think it's nice to know that um, uh, it was it was the character and not you, but um, <laughs> at the same time, like it does ring true for things that we're going through. Absolutely, I think so. I think um, yeah, the the and it became more true as I was writing the book because the book took me quite a long time, and so I was kind of writing in reaction to the world a little bit. But yeah, um, it does feel like quite a strange time where there's a strange sort of dislocation and disconnection to reality in the air. And hopefully the book catches that a little bit. All right. So I can understand. And, and both Rob and I listened to the interview that you were talking about, which to be honest is the first time I'm notorious for refusing to listen to interviews with authors. We're going to interview. So it doesn't put ideas in my head about mm -hmm. questions, either positive or negative. Like, well, that guy asked that. So I don't want to, but I can see where people um, might think that, that, the Andrew Black character is uh, is based on you, and although I know you don't think ebooks are going to be the end of the world, 
Um, and, and, and I preface this by saying I understand I'm asking an author who's about to publish a book. Um, and depending on when you hear this, may have already been published. It might be an ebook format. So I understand yeah. your hesitance to answer this. Based on the design elements of your books, how, how do you feel about ebooks as a as a uh, medium, not for books in general, or and feel free to answer it in books in general, but because of the artwork that goes into your books, how does that affect your feelings towards them? It's it's um, it's interesting because publishing a book isn't quite the same as it used to be. Publishing a book meant you know printed paper, ink, and pages, and a solid cover and a, and a physical object. And now when you publish a book, you're really publishing over three different media. You're publishing that object, you're publishing an ebook, as you say, and you're also publishing an audio book usually. And so I think it, with some books, it's quite easy not to notice that they're not different forms, but they are very different forms. And I think I always write I try and write to the strengths of the medium I'm working in and what I've been writing for has always been print. And I think compared to Rorschach text, when we had some real problems with eBooks when they were in their infancy, when we, when I did that book, uh, I think um, the eBook will be much more manageable and, you know, uh, a completely cool working way to read the book. But I, the book was made to have pages and print and it was made for those pages to turn and for you to be able to move physically through those pages and back and forward and have that strange play of how time seems to move in the book but doesn't and you know it's important to me to write to that very physical object um but i also think that it doesn't have the downside that it used to we came up with some workarounds for the audio book which i think are pretty cool so i think i think print is the best way to read it absolutely and it's what it's intended for but i don't think you'll be missing you won't be missing anywhere near as much as you did with roshark if you choose one of the other forms um i mentioned during our review i originally read this in the digital arc format so um mm. which which by the way was a hot mess and I'm glad to hear that that will likely be better in its final version because none of the um, leaf text came through as, as readable. It was literally one letter per line, <clears throat> but it's not even like you could read it down in a straight line. It was awful. But it's funny because I'm reading this as Andrew Black is telling us that eBooks you know, <laughs> are the end of the world. So in my mind, I'm thinking, man, it sure does feel like that with, with, uh, <laughs> with this book. <laughs> and that, that got me to thinking about your thoughts on, you know, on, on that. So, yeah, yeah. The digital arc is quite a strange thing and I'm not quite sure how it, how it comes to being, how it generates itself. I think it must pull from a file somewhere, but for the actual ebook, we, we have made sure that it works, but I think digital arcs pull it, pull in some kind of way from a file that they've always done for years. And there was no real fixing that, but, but, the actual ebook experience will should hopefully fingers crossed work. So there, there are a lot of thoughts and, and feel free we tried not to disclose too much of the content of the actual book. Um, but oh, feel free you. to disclose as much as you would like on, on this next one. Um, so you have a, a lot of thoughts on, on language mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and how those thoughts relate to religion um, mm. in Maxwell's demon, which was 
one of the most fascinating things for me about this book. Um, has that resulted yet? Because, and to explain for our listeners, this came out in February in the UK. So there are, I'm assuming, reviews and, and you've gotten some feedback. Has there been any pushback on some of those thoughts? No, there, there hasn't. And I think the main reason there hasn't is because, believe it or not, 99.5 or more percent of what's in the book is just straight up taken from those texts. I mean... The idea was I wanted to create this um, sort of religious uh, kind of, maybe religious is the wrong word, but this kind of you know, spiritual backstory, which was this very old way of seeing the world, which would turn out to be more true than we thought. And I actually started to dig into actual religious texts and was really shocked to find that exactly what I was thinking I might have to create already existed. And it was all already there. And as I say, everything that's in the book, I mean, absolutely everything that's in the book is is not tampered with. It's taken from real text. So it's been interesting that people who sort of knew those things have messaged me and said, you know, I've not, I've, I've not done any of this since, you know, RE or... Or, you know, my religious school when I was a kid and it brought it all flooding back. But I think, yeah, because I think it's theories based upon actual scripture. And so, I mean, it's not really, it's not, <laughs> it's not really inventing anything in a way that hopefully uh, would offend anyone, because it's certainly not my intention to offend anyone. It was really just delving into actual scriptures and saying, look, you know, this, this is here, this translates as this, this connects to this. It's fascinating. And just just sort of foregrounding it, really. I um, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that that I, I don't have any religious beliefs, but I find religious religion fascinating. And I mm. finished Maxwell's Demon the first time, so the digital arc, and I probably spent over the next two or three days, maybe three hours on YouTube, um, listening to people <laughs> tell me about. You know, it wound up in the Dead Sea Scrolls and it wound uh -huh. up in the Gospel of Judas. And I, I mean, in stuff that I was not um, keenly aware of, although I kind of understand when the Bible was written and how the current Bible was assembled. Some of this other stuff really blew me away. And so I said some of the most fascinating stuff in this book um, came from that. And I was trying to think to myself, well, if I were devout, if I was somebody who spent Sundays in in church and had read the Bible three times, you know, would, how would I take this? And I, I don't have a frame of reference. And that's mm. why I was wondering if there were people who kind of push back a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm in exactly the same position as you researching it. I was, I was finding the same things and being fascinated, but I'm not an especially religious person. Um, but hopefully what I've done is respectful to people's beliefs. And I, I think, as I said, it is, it's, um, yeah, it's drawing, these fascinating ideas that are there in the texts out to for us to have a look at, which, you know, I just I just find it very cool and very interesting. And like I said, you know, it was it was my idea to create something like this. And then I was just constantly shocked. The further I dug, the more I found. And it's like I mean, I mean Thomas pretty much says it. And my experience was pretty much the same as him going down kind of a similar rabbit hole to you with research and, and just being like, there's there's it's all here. It's it. It's all here. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> uh, I think as a reader, you get a little bit of that too, um, because like you, you have, 
you've you've put together some some interesting thoughts like um the idea of you know first there was the name and then the thing like mm-hmm. that kind of idea and then also the idea of like um knowing someone's name gives you power over them and stuff so there's like um how language impacts reality was was a cool kind of theme in the things that came up um and that leads yeah. to the the question that um Olivia's teed up for you before we started uh, uh recording which is um it, it seems like you have a, a very unique relationship love affair whatever with words and language um so I, I guess like what's the origin of that and is it just something in your in your writing part of your life or or is that language passion like an overall thing for you there 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 are probably a couple of things the first thing is that i've always been fascinated with how books work i mean when i was very small i i discovered um my very first year in school there was this amazing pop-up book called uh, the haunted house and it had you know it had flaps and levers and dials and my little brain was just completely blown by this moving book and it I, I saw it when I was a kid and then I didn't see it again for many, many years until I was in my 30s and ended up getting a copy as a present and I'd not seen it all this time. And I only realized then how sort of important it was for me and how a lot of my ideas about books had come from playing with this wild, you know, imagination sparking interactive book when I was really small. But I mean, also, I've I've always just been fascinated with how books and print work and you know, this was kind of an origin for Rorschach as well, that, you know, when you're reading a book, you, you're you seeing all this stuff, or you're a visual reader like I am, you're seeing all this stuff, but actually you're the one that's creating it. The author's only really queuing you up with, you know, blacking shapes on the page, and you're drawing all this imagery out of your head, and you're dressing the sets, and you're populating them, and you're using rooms that you recognize are houses that you've maybe not thought of for 20 years, but they're all coming from somewhere inside of you. And so that, that magic trick, I think, has always been really fascinating and something I've always wanted to explore and dig into um, with Rorschach. And then I guess kind of Maxwell's was to sort of further the digging that I started in, in Rorschach. But I think also with words, I think my brain is, weird, uh, is wired slightly strangely in that um, a lot of times when somebody says something to me, what I hear them say isn't what they said. It's just a sentence that sounds like it, usually a nonsense sentence. And a lot of the times I have to pause and play back and think, okay, they didn't say the frog is in the hat full of spaghetti (laughs) and try and find, actually try in real time, find what words would sound like that, but that that person would say, and it would make sense in context. And so, I've just always had that. It's always been a way that my brain's working. It doesn't do it every time, but, you know, at least once every couple of days, uh, that will happen. And I'll just be pulled up short by this really bizarre statement someone seems to have made. And I'll have to try and unpick it. And, you know, they'll just look at me really strangely while I'm kind of staring at them like I'm trying to see into their brain as I'm actually trying to rewind and figure (laughs) out what that means. So, yeah, I've always found words to be a bit, a bit mysterious and a little strange and yeah, I think that that strange um, thing that my brain does coupled with sort of the magic of how stories work on the page has always been really exciting for me. 
Yeah, we spend some time on story mechanics <clears throat> in Maxwell's Demon, and it's it's funny that you said that because really, kind of what what kicks off a lot of of the book is um, um, perhaps a misunderstanding of someone hears as they're pulling up their trousers trying to run to the phone, right? Uh -huh. So there's something that's said that doesn't make a lot of sense that that you know maybe or not yeah. later is it's revealed to. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting the the kind of meta way that as we're reading this book, we're being told about stories and even even pointed out to you know to the fact that you know we're reading this from from left to right at least in the majority of of countries you know and how it's drawing us further into the story. Yeah. So like there are all these so there are, you know, we refer to them for lack of a better term um, in our review as supplemental elements um, that really serve to elevate a great core story to, to mm -hmm. something other, something even bigger. Um, when you were plotting this book out, you know, in, in its early stages, is that, is that what you envisioned? I mean, I didn't really plot it out. That, that sort of suggests a level of planning that I don't <laughs> usually undertake. I kind of, I usually, usually is about exploring and writing things and, and seeing where things go and having ideas that I want to test, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a huge plotter, you know, I'm also kind of interested in, in magic and magic tricks. And I think I talk about reading and writing as magic tricks a lot. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if a really great storyteller had set up a trick, but the only way you would know it is if you kind of understood the things that stories do that real life doesn't do. You know, if it was almost too well constructed as a story in places, you know, if there were if there were things that edges that seemed a bit too straight or corners that seemed a bit too neat. And that just seemed to me to be a really cool tell. You know, if you were going to mm -hmm. have a, a magician whose whose magicianing was to create, you know, a story or a world or whatever it is. And the only way you could know that the magician had been up to tricks would be by, you know, kind of understanding how stories work and spotting his fingerprints all over it. I just thought that was really cool. And I think also it, it kind of story theory is super interesting to me and I don't agree with all of it. I, but I think, um, especially with character, character archetypes, it's so interesting the way that different characters absolutely have different jobs to do in stories. And you see those types of characters show up again and again. And, yeah, I just thought, wouldn't it be great to have a story where you could find a way that, that part of the mystery and part of the puzzle solving was also kind of unpicking how stories work and what goes on behind the scenes in stories. And you'd actually use that information to solve whodunit like puzzles. I just found that such a cool idea. So I guess I spent a long time trying to figure out how to make that happen. Um. I, th I think that probably could have an interesting effect on people depending on how they read. So mm -hmm. um, the there's a couple of examples that come to mind with what you were just talking about. There's the whole, in like those leaf footnotes, um, there's the one part that describes the different types of characters and then like also different kind of milestone moments in a story. And so you describe a threshold guardian and then almost immediately afterward give us a threshold guardian. Um, <laughs> Which that was like, I mean, that was that was really a, like an open face kind of thing. Um, the other one is the there was a moment in the book where someone said something about um, real life 
isn't as neat, I guess, as stories. And obviously that's not exactly what you said, but it's kind of the idea mm-hmm. that, that, you know, stories follow their own rules almost. Yeah. And so my thought about that is I'm the type of reader who looks for what, what this says here should have X impact later on. And so mm-hmm. if, if you're the type of person who like follows the internal logic or structure of a book, that is one interpretation of a story that could be different than what the author means or mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying like it opens up the door for different readers are going to maybe take different things out of it but um yeah it, but it can be breadcrumbs for for that that one type of reader yeah oh absolutely and I, I'm I really believe in trying to lay different paths for different sorts of readers and you know build tunnels and and pathways that people that have an interest in a certain sort of thing or understand a certain sort of thing will will pick up on things that people who are not interested or or know about those things will will miss but they'll see a different way of reading it and i think it's all part of empowering the reader and doing that thing i was saying about you know acknowledging how much is coming from the reader and and kind of giving them sort of a space to explore really Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm when I was reading this book, I was reminded of um, If on a Winter's Night, A Traveler by Italo uh-huh. Calvino. And I'm going to assume you're familiar with it because then I went back and reread the Raw Shark texts and uh-huh. noticed that one of the um, parts uh, has a quote from him. Yes. And I've, I've, I've said to, to a number of people that I think If on a Winter's Night is a very important book to read, um, mm-hmm. but that I don't think it's a great story. And what was nice is that some of those same mechanics that he used were put into a great story so as much as i enjoyed reading um calvino's book um i, I sometimes had trouble staying with it because you know your character mm-hmm. isn't really the char- you know what i mean it's shifting if you haven't read it you should because i mean for oh, no, I absolutely have. it's an important yeah. book but i don't i don't um, <laughs> you know i don't know <laughs> if it was a great book. story but yeah this was um this was uh, like a, a mix of a great story and some of that. And that's what I was reminded of while I was reading the, the mechanics stuff specifically. Well, thank you. I, I think books need to have great stories, good characters. I think I don't, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not of the camp that thinks that should be optional. <laughs> I think, <laughs> um, I think um, books can do lots of different things and, and of course, you know, any, everyone's entitled to choose to focus just on one or two of those sorts of things. But, you know, my work's been called postmodern and people assume that that means that it's going to be arch and cold. And I'm very, very interested in writing character and story and emotion because I think, well, that's the engine of story. You can write a book that, that isn't interested in story if you want to. Of course you can, but I mean, I love stories. And I know most people that want to read books want to read cool stories as well as, you know, digging under the hood like my book does about why stories might do the things they do or, you know, the the magic of the underlying texts and ideas about reality that have go back thousands of years, which are fascinating. I mean, all of that's great, but it all has to be in service of something that you respond to as a reader and enjoy, I think, anyway. And I think, you know, a, a whodunit, a mystery uh, is is just such a great engine for a book. 
Um, I want to I want to point out that for in our review of Maxwell's Demon, one of the things that was um, like a strong point that we made is that it is at its core just a really good story. Plus, it's got you know more nuance and 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 stuff to it. So we we love the fact that regardless of how deeply you choose to dive, Maxwell's Demon is a just a truly good story about people, um, and that can be said about the Raw Shark text too. I believe um, when I'm when I'm trying to pitch it to someone the first thing i say is well it's a love story mm-hmm. and then i devolve into trying to kind of summarize <laughs> summarize what actually <laughs> happens but um that's i think at the core of, of both of those stories is uh is a really good story about things that happen to people so thank you thank yeah. you which and is I important that's it's yeah and, and it's important to me personally the way i write is i like to try and create stories that you could read quite quickly from beginning to end without getting too um without stopping to think you know or stopping to do the google searches we talked about and and still enjoy the book and i try to also have those books have no end of tunnels and paths and mysteries and things in that are in there for the second and the third read that happen at the beginning that you might not realized what happening until you got to the end and all of that stuff that reward really attentive readers who want to dig and engage and spot how things are mirroring each other and echoing and all of those things and i i i really do believe that a book can be both i don't think those are opposing forces and and it's hard to do both i mean it's taken me a long time to do the book and rush took me a long time but I find it very rewarding to try and do both, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, I think it's rewarding for the readers. And this this just occurred to me from a value proposition. Um, if I spend $25 on a book, um, mm. the ability for me to want to reread it and enjoy it again for an additional 7, 10 hours, whatever it takes to get through a book, um, provides a value for the reader. Sure. It's like, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, and I know you've worked on video games, but it's like the replayability factor in a video game you can play it uh-huh. straight through it takes you four hours is it worth going through again you know if it is then you've doubled your you know you've doubled your investment from uh, from an entertainment standpoint and and your books uh, certainly seem to do that well thank you and i think it's important that um however you choose to read the book and however you decide that maxwell's demon or roshat text your your personal opinion of how it plays out there's always something that seems to add a little niggling doubt that your reading might not be quite right <laughs> or you know that the, there's there's always something that's unex, unexplainable for every single reading and it you know i spent a long time putting those things in in Rorschach and they're there again in maxwell's and i think it's because one of the worst things, one of the worst feelings is to get to the end of a book and it to be so tidy that you shut it and your brain never needs to think about it ever again. Oh, and yeah. I think there needs to be something to pick at. Good stories always have something to pick at, something that doesn't quite work. Like in uh, Hamlet, they, the times, the timings don't work. Hamlet ages at the wrong speed and people are at the wrong place in the wrong time and it gives it this sense of not being quite right and there's something about things not being quite right that really appeal to our story reading brains and want to go back in and dig at them so i always try and make sure that nothing is easy the things are right i get to make 
a really awkward uh, change to a, a different topic entirely, but uh, do it, do <laughs> so it. I'm just going to be as awkward as possible about this transition. <laughs> um, talking about the ingredients um, uh, of Maxwell's Demon, how it got to be what it is, um, I'm one of those. So living in the United States, obviously what we have access to is different than um, you know other parts of the world. I, I got my hands on a copy of the, the Granta um, uh, issue that has end of endings in it. Yes. And so uh, I, I did that actually well before reading Maxwell's Demon and read it. And I was like, all right, well, this is going to be fun when it, when it comes out. And then read Maxwell's Demon, read end of endings, and then read Maxwell's Demon again. And so part of what shows up in there made it into Maxwell's demon and another part just it just didn't so yes. um, I'm wondering is there is there stuff that's going to be appearing in future stuff um, or did some of the ideas for the for the the other side of it get incorporated into Maxwell's demon or I guess what's uh what what percentage of end of endings DNA made it to Maxwell's demon um Probably about twenty-five or thirty percent of End of Endings DNA made it to Maxwell's Demon, um, because End of Endings was four stories, and each one based on a season, and uh, Maxwell's Demon grew out of the section of that book, which was autumn. So, hence the leaves. Hence the leaves. So spring, summer, and winter, not in Maxwell's Demon at all. But um, most of spring exists, but um, and a good chunk of winter exists. So I would like them to come out eventually. They're just they're still in the machine processing. Um, they're not quite right yet, and yeah. It, it, for a book, it just grew beyond all reason in that it was growing to the point where even the autumn section um, was a novel in itself. And so I made the decision wow. to split them all up and to concentrate on autumn to start with and evolved it a lot more, actually, after it came out of End of Endings. But, um, yeah, that's the reason that some of it isn't in Granter is because it essentially became four books and Maxwell's Demon is just one of them. That's insane. I was not expecting that response. <laughs> That's better than I could have expected. <laughs> I mean, I might eventually um, do spring, winter, and summer. That would be great. Uh, um, I'm not promising, though, because I didn't expect Maxwell's Demon to take this long. <laughs> wow. Inside, well, while we're talking about books that don't currently exist, <laughs> mm. inside of Maxwell's Maxwell's Demon is a book called Cupid's Engine. Um, yes. I, I guess my, my question is, how much of Cupid's Engine do you have like written in your head about the novel that takes place inside a different novel? Um, quite a small percentage for me, because I kind of wanted it to be a book that was better than any book I could write myself. <laughs> so, so I love the key parts of that and the, the endings there and the beginnings there and the kind of overall shape of it. But, um, and, and the book explains sort of what happens in it and how it goes about doing its 
its business and its tricks that it does. But I was kind of aware that, you know, I could spend many, many years trying to write this book and figure out how it all worked. And and actually, you know, it, it was sort of better to say that it existed and that it worked beautifully and, and not get my grubby fingers in there messing that <laughs> fictional book up too much. <laughs> that is, uh, that is fair. Uh, I'm going to use this next question as kind of a transition into the raw shark text. So, okay. Um, while I was reading Maxwell's demon, I don't know, quarter of the way in, I was pretty ready to discount the fact that this takes place in the same world in Eric Sanderson's world of the raw shark texts. But, uh-huh. but there is a mention of unspace and the name Thomas Quinn happens to appear in both of your books. Thomas Quinn, one, two mentions, I think, in mm-hmm. Ross Shark texts. So uh, I guess what I want to ask is, w- would you care to comment on this? No. <laughs> Only to say Danielle Grayson <laughs> also appears in both books. She is, um, she's oh. the upstairs neighbor who brings the post over for Thomas oh. at the start of Maxwell's Demon. And she's not actually in Ross Shark, but she is in the Index. Oh, that's uh, right. I Bob saw that. The index. I yep. was looking at that the other day. It didn't even, I have it in my hand. I have the book in my hands, but I didn't even make that connection. I'll be damned. Yeah. Yeah. She has a whole different story, which um, kind of takes in <clears throat> um, parts of Rorschach kind of, and also explains what she's doing in London, living above Thomas Quinn's flat. But I've not written that story yet. But so her story definitely takes place in the same world as Maxwell's Demon and kind of touches on Rorschach. But there's a lot that goes on in Rorschach about what's real and what isn't. And, you know, it's not possible to get too close to that with shared university type stuff without destabilizing Rorschach texts. And it's kind of internal, external kind of play. But there are some things that go on around Dr. Randall that kind of fair game so Danny Grayson ties in a little bit around that that's not too obscure that's amazing that's the most satisfying no answer we've gotten I think (laughs) (laughs) do uh (laughs) (laughs) we're we're just gonna we're gonna dispose of some of the fanboy stuff um Unchapters is an L. So for anybody who's listening, who's not familiar with raw shark texts, um, I'll just say that there's a, a lot of un kind of theory going on in the book. And for every like four, it's, there's 36 chapters in raw shark text. There are mm-hmm. 36 unchapters. The question is, um, and, and the lore of the unchapters kind of says that some of them are lost to time in the world and everything. Um, yes. Do you have like a backup of them all somewhere that you can just check in on? Or did you really make it like this is a one and done, gone from my mind, gone from the world kind of thing? Yeah, some of them are really, really gone. Unless they resurface from the places they were put, they're, they're, they're gone and lost. Wow. Which is kind of cool. And, and intentionally so, you know, it was um, talking about writing to the medium, the book, the one thing that, that didn't serve Rorschach well about books is how complete they are. And so the unchapters really was an element to kind of muddy the edges of the story and, and kind of play with the idea that, you know, we love the idea of completeness and to find all the things and to get a hundred percent on a game when we're playing it. But actually that isn't possible in accepting 
that some things are never going to be found and some things are lost is kind of part of life. It for sure is. I mean, for, for, for anybody, right? So I'm, yeah. I'm sure all three of us could think back on an instance in our life where we still have some unresolved, unanswered question as to how something or how somebody did whatever it is that, that, that you know, that, that happened. So uh, mm. it's one of the beautiful things about um, the raw shark text. And and let's be honest, occasionally frustrating things as you're pulling your hair out at two in the morning because <laughs> the theory you had just got a hole plugged in it, right? <laughs> I there is will, one that runs with no holes, but I, I, you know, I know, I know. And I tried, I tried, I read this again this, this week and I tried and I'm still, I'm in, maybe, maybe on my fifth or sixth. <laughs> um, there was talk at one point about uh, a bigger story around Mycroft Ward. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't ask, um, is that still a possibility? Um, well, I'm currently, I finished, um, I think I'm allowed to say this, I finished a pilot episode script for a Rorschach TV show, which has lots more Mycroft Ward in it. So if anything happens with that or not, we'll see. But there is, uh, there's definitely more to learn. But, but the, um, the TV show has an interesting relationship to the book in that it isn't just a straight um, retelling, of course, because that would be way too easy. <laughs> but um, <laughs> there, is, there, is, there is more Minecraft out there in some form, for sure. Um, that, that character, one of the things that I thought was um, maybe unintentionally great about that character was how little Mycroft Ward appears in the book, but how mm-hmm. just just limitlessly fascinating the character was. So did you have fun with um making that I feel like I feel like if I was you I'd be like in my mind hanging out with Mycroft Ward or like it, breaking it breaking the character down even if it doesn't show up as much on the page. So I don't know. That just maybe it's that thing where um the idea of something is is more interesting than what they actually are or something but yeah there's something about Minecraft Ward yeah he's he's a great he's a great villain and he's kind of the shark's equal and opposite and yet he never like you say he never appears there is actually a scene where he does appear where Eric meets him that I cut out for that exact reason that he shouldn't appear I mean right. it, it 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 was it was just basically exactly what you said because i liked him and i wanted to spend more time with him and i wanted to put him on stage and have him make a bit of a villain speech and be generally cool and all that stuff but actually he should really never be there he's he's too big and dangerous an idea it's kind of an off-stage mm-hmm. threat is more interesting and as a kind of conceptual idea he's more interesting um it's sort of different on screen where the rules are different and you can actually do some slightly different things and they're in some ways you're more constricted but in other ways you're less constricted and i think i'm gonna he's gonna he definitely definitely shows up in the screen version but i think for the book he um he was also a distraction i mean he's he's um he's a really important character and he's part of the world and he's kind of a mirror of something that's important to the first Eric Sanderson but he's not really he's not really the 
core part of Eric's quest. And he's such mm-hmm. a cool character that he kind of pulls focus. Do you see what I mean? He shows yeah. up. And, and he's a show stealer. Yeah, he works <laughs> so great as a foil. And that, you know, he was just, he was great to almost do like, you know, that, that bottle story with him and just leave it at that because I felt that was just the right amount of him. And I think he could definitely have his own book and that would be really interesting. But Rorschach wasn't the place for more of him. Right. That makes sense. And while you were talking about the, the potential um, TV series, I, I kept picturing repeatedly you get throwing, getting thrown out of pitch meetings because <laughs> the pitch meeting thing comes up and they said, Hey, it's this guy and he's got the raw shark Texas, great book. And you know, and somebody, you know, thumbs through it or reads it and goes, yeah, all right. Yeah. This is a little weird, but we can do this. And then you show up and go, no, no, I have completely different ideas. And you just being unceremoniously <laughs> thrown, thrown out the door from, you know, ITV and BBC and, and whoever else might, you know, have had an interest. <laughs> I should say that the different <laughs> ideas are I uh, are mainly in service of changing the kind of concerns of the story from being a book about books to being a show about shows. If that makes sense, you know. Well, it, and I I want to applaud you too because um, I think anybody would jump at a chance if there's a nipple to to get on the screen, um, which can typically I believe is more financial financially rewarding for for writers than than the actual publication of a book um, mm-hmm. to, to still have the desire to tell a compelling story that's not going to be the video version of the book that <clears throat> some guy has read four times and loves but to give them additional um you know information or additional story or to expand the universe so i i think there are plenty of people that would just be happy if someone came knocking and they'd say yes do whatever you want to do write the check and I'm going to keep mm-hmm. working on my books. So I, I applaud that. Yeah, I I really like writing for screen. I like writing TV. Um, and I think there's an interesting thing with adapting anyway. And I think because Rorschach's the kind of story that it is, and it's, it's sort of a self-contained puzzle box in a lot of ways, you almost don't want to write in argument of the original material you're almost writing in conflict with it if that makes sense because you're having to change things so without saying too much the 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 tv version is you know the book's very obsessed with reflections and mirrors mirror images and the tv version is kind of a mirror image of the book where people are different and people are in different roles but but the, the action is pretty much the same I'll just I'll just stop myself now before I tell you because I'm so excited about it. That's, well, you know, <laughs> yeah, you have our email of... address. You can send us the scripts. That's fine. We won't we won't share them with anybody. <laughs> but yeah, it's more of a companion, I guess. It's like a like a brother sister relationship between like two versions of the same story rather than a retelling of it, which which just feels more rewarding and more interesting. And like if you do like the book, it's not that difficult thing where you go and see an adaptation and you're kind of wincing because it's not quite how you would have done it or how you imagined it. It's much better if uh, an adaptation kind of occupies a slate, a space, you know, slightly to one side of the thing you love, and then you can kind of carry on enjoying both. I'm going to use a really terrible example of, of something like that. Um, and I apologize, but, uh, well, maybe not terrible, but just like, (laughs) it's the first thing that came to my mind. Um, recently, there was a 
TV series of uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, uh-huh. um, which I watched, and I was really nervous because I'm a big Douglas Adams person, and um, and and especially like the Dirk Gently stories. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. I'm assuming oh, yeah. you would be. <laughs> yeah. um, and so watching something like that, there is that kind of fear of if they if they do it if they if they do it one way, and it's not to my liking you know it's gonna be disappointing so what they did was they did it um in a different part of the timeline from where the stories are and so that kind of gave them the freedom to make it um make it so it doesn't fail you know Mm -hmm. parts of parts of the original story but then it also gave them the opportunity to like make references to or uh like there's moments where i'm like oh they did the thing you know so it it was it was a nice way to um it was a nice way to inhabit the stuff without um, worrying about how faithful they needed to be or how accurately they portrayed this and that. So, yeah, um, absolutely. I, I I felt the same as you. I really liked that show, and I thought it was really clever how they positioned it to the yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally really agree. Sad when they can when they didn't do a third one. Yeah, well, and I feel like they wrapped up. I think the second season pretty nicely. Like, um, but um, I guess. And, and and I would say that even like kind of what you're saying, if it's just, if if it's a it's like a reflection of, mm-hmm. um, that I think the fact that you're you're taking a slightly, it would be like looking at the same like you know shot in a movie from a different camera angle or something like that. Like even yeah. that adds a different kind yeah. of originality to it. Even to, you know so, um, uh, I I think that that that's a cool way to approach. Um, uh, you know, doing something that's that's already existed in a different form format. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I I almost never make life easy for myself, <laughs> but but it always seems to be the right thing to do. I mean, maybe one day it won't be, but you know, just just kind of transposing it without any, you know. Uh, just, just without taking time to enjoy the differences of the the medium, right? You know, the Rorschach took so much time to enjoy its bookishness, and and like like we talked about Maxwell does as well. And I think, you know, you want to get the essence of that. Find a different way to enjoy the tricks that the camera does and the tricks that mm-hmm. the screen plays with you, and you know, see see what like. A parallel of that might be, and I think that's where the fun of it is. I, I just have to imagine that there's so many clever ways that you could like make reality questionable with um, camera work. Like even like you know you see in like the examples of in a movie where um, a camera is following someone who's running up to a mirror, but then it goes right through the mirror, and you were looking from the other direction all along and stuff. So mm-hmm. that's it, like for the type of story you tell, I have to imagine that there are there are possibilities that you would be excited to explore absolutely there really really are and lots of things like you say with camera moves and tricks and things that aren't quite what you see you know you can the amount of information you transmit very different with the screen because you're dealing with pictures and so you know the 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 puzzle building is different and has different rules which is really exciting so I was thinking, is there, or are, are there any TV shows 
um, or even movies that you respect in the way that you would like to see your work come to, to video? Well, that's a good question. Um, I thought uh, Watchmen was incredible. I really, really loved that. And mm -hmm. I loved... Um, I loved the way that they did something which you kind of see increasingly now is that they didn't feel the need to stop and explain themselves. The story carried on its own place and trusted you to be uh, a smart enough viewer to either go with it or pick it up as you went along. I mean, it doesn't seem that long ago that scripts were full of flashbacks where there would be a, split, a scene that would explain why a character was in a certain <laughs> situation or why they'd come to believe that or you know, whatever it was that led them to make this choice. And now that seems to not be the case. Now we, we're kind of trusted to be smart and to kind of pick up the inference as we go along, which I really, really like. And I thought that was that show was just so bold with that. Um, so that was incredible. I thought Haunting of Hill House was incredible as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was just so great. I mean, just and, and I like the book, too, and just taking the book apart and somehow getting all the things that book was about and all the ideas, but in a completely different order with completely different characters. And, you know, I just love that we were talking and we were saying how, like, the idea of that show seemed to be that, you know, ghosts are really echoes of past trauma, brackets, but also ghosts actually exist, close brackets. <laughs> Which is just just a fantastic setup. It's like both of those things are true. I go. Livius <laughs> so, so, uh, had uh, yeah. There's there's moments in that ha haunting of Hill House that I think are some of the best television I've seen in a long time. And and there was one part that Livius gushed about where um, the twin feels really cold a lot in the episode, and and like you only later uh -huh. on figure out figure out why, and it's like oh yeah. So sorry. Just had a little gushy moment about that. Oh yeah, no, it's it's so great, and the uh, the bent neck lady. Oh my god. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we 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 watched all of the credits of that episode in silence, and then sat in silence for another five minutes <laughs> after it finished. Just wonderful, wonderful story work, and just just oh, just so great. But I mean, it's a great time for TV as well, isn't it? I think that's something that's exciting like as i'm looking to do more stuff in tv as, as well as books is that it kind of <laughs> i'm looking in a way in that there is so much tv that actually the last thing tv wants to be is safe and so writers who are like me that write stories that are different unusual and and don't you know really have the beats in the places you might expect a tv show to have their beats i mean it's 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 more the kind of place that I can write for than I'm sure it would have been like 20 years ago when, mm -hmm. you know. So is it hard for you to write scripts? Because and, and I'm not at all familiar with the process. I, I've read a few, right? Something struck my interest or whatever, but they seem very sparse. And you're a very rich storyteller. So do, does that format... Um, become more difficult for you or, or do you go, and this is great. I don't have to add uh, three paragraphs kind of <laughs> describing this idea. I'll let some filmmaker at some point figure out how to do it. A little bit of, a little bit of both. Um, my scripts are quiet. They have a lot of direction in them, like a huge amount. So the idea would be you read one of my scripts. It's pretty much like watching the show. It has 
shots in it. It has all the timings. It has all the beats and things. So you do get scripts that are super sparse and are just dialogue and scene headings and a little bit of uh, set up here and there. Mine aren't like that at all. And, you know, there, I guess there are pluses and minuses to that. But the plus of it is that when, I, when someone reads my scripts, they can absolutely see what I'm trying to do. Um, so I've always just had a very visual imagination. So it's kind of, there's something quite nice about the rough and readiness of a script that you can kind of, there's a format to throw down a scene and it to be instantly gettable. So when it picks up and who, who's comfortable reading scripts, picks up and, and sees it and can immediately see the scene. And, you know, it's kind of freeing for me not to, have those thoughts about the best way to build the prose and how much I need to say and you know is there something I should be reflecting here in the descriptions which are actually doing a different job you know it's very much to set up set up a scene visually and beat wise and have the characters be in it is kind of refreshing and, and sort of the different at different end of the scale to what I do in prose if that makes sense so I kind of enjoy it because it's so different all right. I am Mr. Hard Transition to a different topic today. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, circling back around to, I guess, the books in general, um, one of the things that is just obviously tied to you or thought about when you are mentioned is the unconventional format or layout of books. Um, and so I, I don't know how much you, you hear about, you know, other books with unique formats, but um, is there any, are there other examples that you particularly enjoy or do you, I guess, I guess, are you inspired by book layouts and, and stuff that you've seen, or is it more just you have a unique vision for what you do? I think partly it's that I believe that when you set out to tell a story with a book, you need to look at what your toolkit is and your toolkit is, like I've said, I try and write physical books. So it's physical pages, it's ink. It's basically about 300 white squares that you can fill however you want to. And I really do approach it in that way. And, you know, what what is conventional and, and what isn't is sort of less important to what's the most interesting way to depict this part of the story or tell this part of the story. And so I kind of come from an arts background and did a lot of text-based art and was very interested in text-based art when I was at college. And so I guess my references are more art-based, but also, you know, there are just some amazing um, visual text-based books. You know, House of Leaves is one that should always be brought up in any conversation about visual storytelling in a novel because, and I think... Um, what Mark did so brilliantly in that is is kind of what we were talking about before is that he took, you know, what could have been quite a scary and complex um, structure that's more, you know, identified more with kind of cold postmodernism and literary theory. And he actually put an amazing, terrifying story engine into it and made this wonderful horror that's all of these other things as well you know and all this all these great ideas on theory and history and so many other things but at its core it has this driving brilliant gettable horror and i think that's kind of a a landmark in kind of 
concrete prose or whatever you want to call it because I think Mark's book was the point in which it, it stopped being kind of cold experimentation and started being this kind of accessible while still very dense and labyrinthine and terrifying story tool. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, that honestly brings me back around to, so we talked to Mark, um, what was it like a year ago, Olivia, something like that. that. He had had a children's book that came out and we had a, we had the opportunity to talk to him. And, um, Mm. one of the things, so, uh, when he had his series, the familiar, um, Mm -hmm. was being released, we, we, I'm, I'm telling lots of stories at the same time, but we, we got to see him read live and um, during the Q&A, he was talking about how he was disappointed about some of his ebooks not um, kind of representing his his book the way that he had hoped they would. And yeah. um, so when we were talking to him, uh, we interviewed him on the podcast and that came up again. And because I felt bad for the guy, because essentially what it came down to was it wasn't that he designed a bad book. It was that technology didn't wasn't good enough to support it. And, and so he yeah. had this whole idea of being like, um, like too far ahead of his time for, for the mm. idea he had for, for a, a, an ebook. And that was kind of sad, but at the same time, it's like, um, I don't want those types of ambitions to be squashed because, because like publishing can't make it look the way you want to. So that's yeah. what that, like, I, I think about how, um, in some ways you are limited by like what, current like you know publishing um you know possibilities are yeah and, and i think it's it's um exciting and rewarding to write to the limits of the format but it's it's heartbreaking when the limits are fuzzy and mm. it turns out the place you've landed is slightly out of bounds you know i can't i can't imagine how yeah. horrible that must be because you know there's something you know pushing things as far as they can go and you know we had to do lots of tests in maxwell's because the te- some of the text is so tiny i think there's like four point or three point text or smaller in there <laughs> and i thought that's it's going to be impossible to print because yeah. i mean even when we did rorschach i think it would have been impossible to print and it came out so insanely crisp you know i've put, i've got some pictures of one of the tiny leaves with a with a, a 1p coin next to it and it's just the coin looks gigantic <laughs> But yes. yeah, it's it's um, not quite because so few people do this thing that, that a few of us do. It's you don't quite know, I guess, where the edge is, and so you just have to kind of shoot and and hope you land. You know, not over it, but also not playing it too safe either. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. The magnifying glass people are happy for the increase in sales for, for some of those things. <laughs> and Maxwell's team, and I felt like Sherlock Holmes, you know, hovering over a book with my magnifying glass to to, to read some of it. Oh, fantastic! Um, so we've talked about like the different interpretations of um, you know both Maxwell's team and Amrosh Architects, but this specific question because there's been a little bit of time since the Rosh Architects came out. Do you have a favorite like fan? Um, you know, either creation, like a real world creation or a theory that's based on the raw shark texts? Um, there are a few. I mean, I, 
shouldn't really get into them because it kind of gives away that they were. But I will say that there are, when I did the Rorschach text and I toured around with that book for probably about six months and met so many people who read it who had really great theories. I think I had, I don't know, three or four readings in mind when I wrote it. And then I was presented probably with another 10 that were all great and all worked. And <laughs> what I actually did with the paperback is I changed some things to kind of give more support to those readings. So like adding things and changing borders and doing tiny things, which suggested things were slightly different, how they appeared in the hardback and changing phrasing slightly and, and, to support the really great readings that I found. <laughs> so, so I kind of incorporated a lot of other people's great ideas. And one thing that, that happened that was really fun was that I met a guy who said, I really, really loved your book until like the last chapter. And then this, this happened and it all turned out and I was really disappointed. I hated it. And I was like, Oh, I'm really sorry, but you know, what about it? Didn't you like, and he went into this, fantastic complex interpretation of the story which was so far beyond anything i ever thought of or intended which he then hated so he'd invented <laughs> this reading that he was then utterly disappointed and frustrated with and i didn't point out that that it was his own reading <laughs> <laughs> wow he's in a mental institution now um, <laughs> yeah but I that's thought that's crazy. so yeah. cool that you could, your brain could interpret a text in a certain way, but that it wouldn't be a way that you would enjoy is so interesting. You know, you can imagine reading a book <laughs> and thinking, oh no, I bet it's going to turn out to be this. And then convincing yourself that it is this, even though that wasn't the only way to read it at all. I think part of the reason it's called the Rorschach text is, you know, play on the inkblot test is that it's supposed to say a little bit about who you are as a reader by what you get out of it now for most of us it said that we were idiots so i have a question though so in all seriousness you said you made some changes between the hardback and the paperback yeah Do those does that stand true for um international edition so i recently reread the paperback so would the american first edition hardcover or would all the hardcover, I guess, editions in the U.S. contain the original, non-tweaked? Yes. And I all think right. the American paperback contains the slight tweaks. I think. I think, yeah. I think that's right. It's been a long time since I've thought about it. But no, I know. Sure. I realize sometimes we're asking questions about a book that, you know, uh, it's, it's aged a little bit. So <laughs> I, I could see where it'd be a little fuzzy on, on your end. Yeah, but no, I think that's right. I think the tweaks are in, uh, I think the American is the same as the British one, that the American hardback is the original version and the tiny tweaks are in the paperback, yeah. Well, there goes there goes another rereading, I guess. <laughs> some yeah. of them aren't even to do with the words. You know, some of them are to do with borders and tiny typesetting things and the edges of images. Please, please don't. Don't disappear down a rabbit hole. <laughs> That's yeah. The next time I have free time, I'm just going to be, you know, I'm going to set up a nice cork board in my bedroom and start tacking pages that I tear out of a book to it. Yeah. yeah. As long as you don't start writing directly onto the wall, if that starts happening, you know, you've gone too far. <laughs> 
I, so switching over to slightly different work, um, I have to imagine that, that and to correct me if I'm wrong, you may have grown up as a fan of Doctor Who. Yeah, I did, yeah. What was it like getting to write for, um, you know, an audio drama for Doctor Who? Oh, it was the best. You know, and um, the great thing about Rorschach coming out and making quite a lot of noise is that I suddenly had this book that I could go to places I'd always wanted to do work and say, hey, look, I wrote this book. Can I do something for you? So it was great to just email the, the Doctor Who audio guys and say, hey, I wrote this book. You know, it was, you know, it's done okay. Please, can I write something for Doctor Who? Um, and they quite rightly were completely unimpressed and were like, yeah, we don't care about your book. What's your idea? And is, is it any good? <laughs> and so um, they let me pitch them an idea, which they liked. And uh, I did a one-off 20-minute single-episode story, and that went pretty well. So they let me do a full four-part for them, which was just awesome. And I was there for recording because, you know, you won't, be surprised at all that the stories were quite complicated so it was best to have me there so I could explain things to the actors and stuff and um, stop people from falling into traps of you know things being about something that happens in the next act or whatever that the actor might not necessarily catch on to and so they did not inflect their performance just all of those little things so it meant I was there in the booth the whole time and got to work with Sophie Aldred and Sylvester McCoy, which is just fantastic. It was really great. That has to be so cool. Now, um, it did not escape my notice, although I have not heard them, that there is a character that's similarly named in the audio dramas to a character mm. that makes an appearance in the Raw Shark text. I'm sure you've been asked this plenty of times, but again, would you care to comment? <laughs> a, a kind of original sneaky intention was that they would be the same character but as the doctor who character evolved they um developed quite different repertoire and and, and quite in different directions but um yeah i i guess taking the idea of a character called nobody which does a very specific thing in a book like the Rorschach text and putting that into a situation in Doctor Who and growing something huge in sci-fi out of that was really rewarding. But I guess nobody, no one, the Doctor Who character is inspired by nobody, the Rorschach character, but they're not the same person, sadly. Although I would have liked to find a way to sneakily make them the same person. It didn't work. <laughs> but don't think I didn't try. <laughs> I, I I would too. I think that that was the right <laughs> intention. Um, so we're 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 close to we exa we we exhausted our list of questions for Maxwell's Demon and Raw Shark Text, but um, it it occurs to me that sometimes um, maybe the the interviewer just isn't hitting on something that the interviewee might want to discuss. So is there anything about either book uh, or about the books in general that maybe you haven't had an opportunity to talk about that you think is uh, something you want to talk, what you want to say? It's a really good question. It's, it's slightly strange with Maxwell's because it's so new. I actually don't know it as well as I will eventually come to know it. There was a strange time with Rorschach text where I found it really hard to explain the book and to explain 
what was going on mechanically and what was what to who in various ways of reading it. It was just sort of too new. And it, it took, I don't know, maybe three or four years till I could sit down and say, this is the way it's working and this is leading to this, which is this and this. And so I think there probably will be things that I want to talk about, but I don't know what they are yet. <laughs> so you caught me when I'm just so fresh after releasing this book that I'm only just really getting to grips with it myself from the other side, which is a sort of a different thing to get into grips with it with your kind of sleeves rolled up working at the mechanics of it. It's a question I've never thought to ask uh, uh, an author. Um, so, and I'll ask it about raw shark text because there's some time. Have you uh -huh. have you reread raw shark text? I mean, after you know your original editing, and then you made some tweaks. Do you ever just sit down and pick up the book and read it? Yeah, I reread it um, about a year ago, and it's quite strange um, because. Enough time has gone by and there are enough things in that book that I would have done slightly differently and not necessarily better, but differently, that it feels almost like it isn't mine or it feels like it is mine, but a past version of me who's very much not me. It's a very strange and singular sort of experience hmm. because it's like it's it's absolutely definitely me and it's my book and I remember. But there are huge chunks of it that I kind of forgotten or things that I did in it where I thought oh that's nifty and things I did in it where I thought oh I do that differently now and so it was a, a very strange experience that was kind of on the one hand sort of revisiting a, a, a past self that isn't that far in the past but that's past enough to not feel quite like you anymore if that makes sense so it was for, because for I think after I made the tweaks of the paperback, I didn't reread it for quite a long time because I think there was just so much noise and it was such a big part of my life for such a long time that I needed I needed to let it settle down into the past a little bit. And I think it's only like quite recently with Maxwell's that I've been excited to go back and look at it and and to yeah, to to see the differences in there is 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 really cool actually. It's a, it's a strange experience. Heartily recommend writing a book, putting it away for 15 years, and then looking <laughs> at it again. Because and I'm not sure there's anything quite like it. That's that's funny. All right, so this is not the same thing as what you're saying, but we were talking to um, Josh Mallerman uh, when he released his follow-up to Bird Box called Mallory, and um, uh -huh. when he was talking about this, we talked a little bit about the success of, of Bird Box, and it's funny because he was when he was talking about seeing you know the movie become successful and all this stuff in his head it was the main character Mallory's success like it was he was like oh good job Mallory instead of like it being something <laughs> that he himself you know was was um was the focus of or whatever so um that's that's, so that's, a, that's another another time where an author feels um like kind of separated from that book making experience i guess to yeah. say so um yeah it's funny that you were saying that i was like oh this is just like mallerman thinking that bird box is a is a mallory book so yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's really interesting because i guess you other than like looking back on stuff like that and 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 stuff where you would actually have spent enough time writing enough words that you've actually made some sort of imprint of your 
creative process and also your, your your thinking process and even your sentence structure i mean it's not something you do all that often and it's quite strange to look back and think hi i've definitely changed if i want to word this question properly because i realize in its original format i might not get the answer i'm looking for um <laughs> So originally, I just wanted to ask what voices you get excited about, but I guess it's a two-part question because I don't necessarily know that, um, but let me do it this way. What authors do you get excited about and what authors do you think your fans should be excited about? Because I think that's two different questions. Like you may say something, I doubt it, but something like, oh God, I just love James Patterson, which wouldn't really get to the heart of my quite, which is fine, <laughs> but I, you know what I mean? So I, I guess... Who do you like and who do you like that you think your readership would like? You know, that's such a strange thing. And believe it or not, I have been slightly paralyzed from being able to read fiction for quite a few years. It got to the, the point with Maxwell's where... I simply couldn't concentrate on fiction while I was trying to do this book. And I had to move into lectures and nonfiction. And so I'm actually really behind with my fiction reading, like hugely. And funnily enough, the the massive appetite I had for what I wanted to read was Stephen King. I started with Stephen King's most recent book and worked all the way back. Uh, and I don't know why my, my brain... Uh, I do know why, because I've always loved Stephen King, but my brain was basically just screaming, feed me Stephen King to finish this book. So I, I don't ask too many questions of my, my brain when it's working. I just fed it Stephen King while I, while I, was, while I was writing <laughs> Maxwell's Demon. And, and, and uh, it, it, it was a, yep, yep, this is the good stuff. This is what we need more Stephen King, please. So I read so much Stephen King and, and, Stephen King's written so many brilliant books. Um, who do I think uh, my readers should read? I think um, Calvino, absolutely, as you say. A Winter's Night Traveller. Have you read The Castle of Cross Destinies? I have not, but it is on my list. That is a that is a cool one. That is um, for your listeners. That's. Uh, <laughs> a book where the different characters lay out tarot cards and the tarot cards appear across the page and each character has to tell a story using the images of the tarot cards going in the direction they're assigned so they all use the same cards but to tell a different collection of stories it's very clever and just very mechanically interesting which i like uh paul oster um i think he's incredible and there's so many nods to the New York trilogy in Maxwell's Demon, it's untrue. Um, yeah, of course, Mark, of course, House of Leaves. Um, Jeff Noon, a, a really fantastic um, British sci-fi writer from the 80s and 90s who's also worked with experimental typesetting and wrote the most fantastic, strange, surreal stories. Uh which take place in worlds where there are games that are also hallucinogens, which are also other dimensions, just utterly wonderful, crazy things. But I'm, 
yeah, I'm one of the things I'm really happy about that this book is out and I can feel that I'm already excited to catch up on reading things that aren't Stephen King or classics. The other thing I got into <laughs> was classics. I read a lot of Dickens. Um, <laughs> and I think it was just that I had to give my brain a lot of room to maneuver on this book. And I think it didn't want to see what people were doing around me, as strange as that sounds, it, except for Stephen King, which it was desperate to see what he was doing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I feel like I've got a huge reading list ahead of me, which I'm just excited about for the first time in ages because, yeah, it's for the most part, my brain is just the word book has mainly only meant my book and, and wrestling <laughs> this beast into shape, which just been a huge undertaking and taking me years and years and, and it's just such a nice feeling that it's out in the world and people can read it now and that I can sit back and give myself a bit of time to read other fiction before I start the next one. When you're not um, answering all of our questions about the, the book. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we wrap it up, um, I, I guess this is an interesting question considering that the, the span of time between Raw Shark Text and Maxwell's Demon, but uh, what could our listeners kind of think they might see next from you? And that's always a weird question when someone's about to release a book or just released a book. Like we're like, Hey, what's next? Because you're focused on this, but um, what's on, what's on the horizon? Um, there are two different TV shows that are out there that are not Raw Shark Texts are out there and um could very well happen soon so the next thing people might see from me might not be a book at all um in terms of book form i'm not quite sure there are those other seasons from end of end and swirling uh there's potentially stuff connected to the tv show worlds i created that i might spin off in a different direction but if I was if I was a betting man and looking at the fact that there's been 14 years between these first two books, I would say that the next thing from me might be on screen. Well, we certainly look forward to whatever it is that's um, next from you. So um, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing this. This has been a, um, when I say lifelong, I mean the life of this podcast kind of a dream for us to be able to pick your brain. And uh, you couldn't have done a better job because you did exactly <laughs> what you did in your books. There's absolutely great content. And then there, there's these little crumbs that are dropped that I'm going to listen back to this interview and, and jot down and, and draw lines from things to things to try to, to try to figure out so um again steven best of luck with maxwell's demon and thank you so much for uh wow. for taking time out of uh what i'm guessing is probably a bit pretty busy promotion schedule for you to talk to us oh it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me guys livius we did it <laughs> we did we did i i feel like um i feel like a bucket list item has, yeah. uh, has just been crossed off um rob said something to me <laughs> <laughs> And Rob can edit this out, I guess, if he really wants to. Um, so we got off the call with, uh, with Stephen, and uh, you know, we're going, oh man, that was a really great interview. And oh, we knew, you know, from his first answer, blah blah, right? And then Rob goes, you know, it's weird. I kind of miss him already. Like I wish we were still talking to him. And yes, so do I. But we exercised an incredible amount of restraint, I think, in not. Um, Stephen made the mistake of saying, I don't really have a hard stop point, so we can just go for however long. 
and you know rob and i are already canceling our afternoon plans <laughs> you know because because you know so but we, we exercise restraint um but what what a great interview and what a nice guy i agree um and i'm wondering he because he did a lot of you know um promotion for raw shark text you know when it came out and is in that maelstrom of promotion for maxwell's demon now um and I wonder how often he has had to say the same stuff. And one of the goals that we have on the podcast is to try and like have as original of a thread of, of discussion as possible. But um, uh, it's just nice at a book that you have held in esteem for years um, to, to be able to pick the brain of the person who uh, wrote it, not necessarily to, to influence your interpretation of the book, but just to like, um, Cause it's fun. Like, and that's, that's the thing. This was fun. Like, I, I feel like I didn't, um, get a different perspective of raw shark texts or Maxwell's demon than I had before, but it was just fun to talk about, you know, all the stuff that surrounds it. Yeah. And, um, look, we, we've been very lucky, right? So we've had great interviews because we've had great guests. Um, but if you want to talk about being able to, to talk about more than story, um, you know, who better to do that with? Yeah. So we did it. The bucket list is, has got a lot of check marks on it. I feel like it's pretty complete. (laughs) It feels, uh, feels that way. So, um, that's it. That's it for this episode. Not exactly sure what's coming next. We've got something in the works. Not sure if it's going to happen or not, but, uh, we did say on the last episode, uh, cause this is dropping, um, well, I, I guess at this point I have to time travel, right? So last week was our 10 year anniversary. We're taking at least a week off. Um, mm-hmm. so don't look for us next week, but in the near future, um, there'll be another episode of booked until then I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. <laughs>